Welcome to a special episode of First Fuel. Last week, we brought you a sundowner session with Mark Butler, direct from the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2020. Sundowner sessions are an opportunity for me to catch up with the political leader for a relaxed chat, the kind of conversation we'd usually have after the event has wrapped and everyone is off the stage. This week, we're bringing you another sundowner, this time with independent member for Warringah, Zali Stegall, who is making waves in the Australian Parliament with a climate change bill that would, among other things, commit Australia to net zero emissions by 2050. So at the conclusion of day two of the conference, I grabbed a carbon neutral beer and jumped on Zoom with Zali. I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you do too. Welcome back for the final session of day two of the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2020. And uh, it's my great pleasure, my great pleasure to introduce you to the member for Warringah, Azali Stegel, OAM, who is joining us live from, I understand, uh, well, maybe I'll let you, Zali, tell you where we, where you are because it's somewhere very special. Uh, yes, very exciting evening. Thank you, Luke. Um, and thank you, everyone, for having me. Um, I'm actually at Taronga Zoo in Mossman for a screening of the ABC documentary After the Fires. So very topical around obviously climate change and the impact on our uh, natural environment and the animals and really long-lasting impacts. So exciting to be here. Yeah, well, Taronga Zoo, um, a, a beautiful and absolute institution here in Australia in terms of their support for Australian wildlife, Australian biodiversity and an appropriate venue for that documentary. I obviously haven't seen it. I, I suppose you haven't either, but I have had a look at the trailer and um, it looks it looks pretty haunting, to be honest, Zali. Um, uh, a really uh, a sobering view of um, some of the devastation that was wrought earlier this year by those bushfires, but also the recovery that those communities are going through um, around, around the country. Yeah, look, um, you know, if you think back, 12 months ago, um, we were, you know, Sydney was shrouded in smoke. We had Mm. the whole east coast of Australia very much under threat with bushfires raging. Um, I would argue we had our first climate refugees uh, with, you know, communities being evacuated from beaches. And so that whole issue of our sustainability, reducing our emissions and climate became very real for for many communities. Um, And in particular, you know, how much of our way of life was under threat um, and, and our wildlife, you know, really uh, crystallises, I think, a lot of people's sort of maybe um, focus once they realise what's at risk. Um, uh, you know, it's easy for us to be caught up in our lives, not focusing always on environmental issues or thinking something's happening somewhere else. Um, but it was a real reminder and a real wake-up call for Australia, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's been been an incredible year and, and um, uh, not necessarily in a good way, but certainly in uh, in a way that has, has focused our minds. Now, um, this is a sundowner. Um, we we said that we were going to catch up for a beer. We should probably introduce the beer to the uh, to the endeavour, um, even if only as a prop. I'm going to drink. You don't have to, Zali. But I understand you do have a good local beer up there in in Sydney. Well, we actually have a number of great indie breweries actually in mm. in Warringah, in Brookvale. But what I do have is Four Pines oh, yep. started in Brookvale. Very good. Um, who are 100 percent renewable? Oh, there so, you go. You know. We've got to stay on topic and on message, so uh, that will be my drink of choice for tonight. 
No, very, very good. Um, I've got a, a Little Creatures, um, uh, which is uh, which is produced um, by a, a large organisation, Line. But um, the reason we chose this, uh, Zali, is because um, we actually did a launch. So we do a briefing every year for uh, Australian businesses that are looking to harness, I guess, uh, energy management and on their net zero journey. And, and as, as you know, we've got more and more businesses um, that are, are taking the lead and um, getting on with it, regardless of you know the the, the sort of back and forth of policy debate. Um, that, that certainly occur at the, the federal level, and um, we were lucky enough to have the head of sustainability for Line join us for the mm-hmm. uh, for the latest launch of that briefing just a, just a month ago. Um, and you know, great story. Line is the first carbon neutral brewer in Australia. They've done, they've they've invested heavily in energy efficiency. Um, they've done the renewables, the power purchase agreements, and and they are offsetting a portion of their emissions. But really significantly, the, the thing that the thing that struck me about that about that was the the work that they're doing. Having having kind of gone on that journey within their own uh, business, um, starting to work with their supply chains and helping them on that journey, um, the packaging and like incredibly exciting that supply chain piece and of the of the economic transition we're working our way through. And this actually really shows. First, you set the goal. You've got to lock in that ambition, mm. and then yep. you actually start the planning of how you're going to deliver on that ambition. And each, um, you know, th- there are parts, there are blocks to the puzzle that need to be worked out, and you've got the. Mm. The initial ones, when it comes to the renewable energy, you know, getting getting those power power purchase agreements in place and going to mm-hmm. net to renewable to, to zero uh, when it comes to your energy. But then you've got those ways of offsetting the other aspects of your manufacturing or your production, looking at your supply chain, getting all your partners on board as well. Um, that's what you know. We see the private sector and businesses doing it. Yep. They are miles ahead of federal government. State governments are there as well. They're really doing the job. Um, we really need federal government to just get on board now and, and put in place the right mechanisms that will help the private sector really accelerate their transition. So, Zali, you seem to be implying that you, you're not in the camp that says that you should wait until you know how you're going to do something before you set the target. No, and I, th- and I think it's pretty universal that everyone's saying that's actually not how you achieve great things. And yeah. it's been really interesting because I've had a number of talks across so many sectors and that is just not how you achieve. So even as an athlete, right, from sport, yeah. you set a goal of you want to be successful at the Olympic Games. Now, Just hypothetically, Zali. Hypothetically, <laughs> right? As a kid decided I wanted to be at the top of the podium, you know, be uh, go to the Olympics. Now, you don't automatically know all the how but you do know you're going to have to set in place a plan and you're going to have to have building blocks and one thing leads to the other Um, and you see that in business Uh, I was talking to the Planning Institute of Australia today um, that's happening in planning it happens in every sector but what you do need to know is what's your destination we need the driver and the driver is locking in our net zero by 2050 goal make that law so we really have no hesitancy you know there is certainty for all sectors and then how do you get there well, you put in place five-year emission reduction budgets and, and you get there gradually. Um, I always make the analogy, it's like if you plan to run a marathon, you're not going to go out tomorrow and run 42 Ks. Yep. What you do do is you enrol in, in an event and then you work your way back to, backwards and you set up a training program and gradually you increase your capacity to get there. Um, it's what we need to do from a national ambition point of view. I think it's a fantastic analogy. I'm going to return to it, but um, I do I, I do want to um, – 
to sort of uh, pick up uh, your personal story because it, you know, it's a, it's a compelling one. You sort of had that, that sort of period in the public spotlight, but then you, 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 you joined the workforce, you, you, you were practicing law, um, you know, quite, quite accomplished in that space. Um, you were a private citizen observing, you know, let's call it a decade of dysfunction in climate and energy politics. You don't strike me as someone that was sort of uh, raging the barricades as a, <laughs> over, over the course of, of your lifetime, but um, um, you have taken on this this as, as a as a really a, a personal passion. How did you feel as you were watching this back and forth playing out, particularly at the at the at the federal level? And and what sort of tipped you over to the point where say I've got to I've actually got to step up. I've got to step back into public mm-hmm. life and I've got to mm-hmm. do something about this. Yeah, look, I guess I've always been a very goal orientated person, and I've never been mm-hmm. one to shy away from a big challenge. So just because it's a big goal or ambition doesn't mean you can't get there. You have to break it down into what you can manage. So I did that in my sporting career. Obviously, then had kids, got into the you know work life, as you say, private citizen, mm-hmm. get on with the job. But the same um, theories and, and approaches apply. You know, to, to win a case in court, you have to be, you have to think clearly what is the ultimate outcome you would like the judge to come up with. What is the evidence? How, what is the case you're going to need to run to get there? You know, and there's going to be compromise, and you're going to go to mediation, and you're going to have to do a lot of uh, you know really work with the other side, work with your client. Yep. Um, so I was always a little bit, I guess, stumped with the idea that from a political point of view, we didn't seem to have that common sense approach happening. Um, I think we had a consensus back in 2007 with Rudd uh, and and Howard. You know, Howard was maybe late mm. to the party coming to it, but he at the 2007 election, we did have a consensus around climate policy. Yep. Um, that consensus continued with Rudd and Turnbull in op- as opposition leader. And then it got really turned its, on its head by ironically the previous member of Fororinga, who used it as a leadership challenge. And then we started this decade of topsy-turvy um, weaponizing climate policy for personal gain, I would argue, um, in terms of ambitions within politics as opposed to greater good for Australia as a whole. Um, and I think we need to call time on that and 2020 should be the year we stop that and we focus on the long-term safety and security of Australia by having good climate, bipartisan climate policy in place. It's always struck me, um, sort of observing the, the Australian political debate, that there's been this, this strange sort of dysfunction in the parliament in that if you, if you had a, a, a conscience vote on really any any of the, um, the the proposals that have been put forward over the last 10 years that would have moved the ball forward in this space, um, there would have been a, a consensus, I think. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, I, th- I think you would have 80% of the parliament agreeing. And mm. I think at the moment the way it's structured is you're giving a disproportionate power to a minority who are prepared to wreck the joint. Um, and, and that is not how democracy should work. You shouldn't be a minority with a dis- disproportionate power to hold everyone to ransom against a better better policy. So I think, you know, we, and the key is finding mechanisms. So I'm not a career politician. I, you know, came from the bar from my sporting background. And again, like you were saying before, I felt like I can't be a passenger. We can't, I can't be a bystander on this issue and on a few issues around politics. And that's yep. why in 2019, I felt like it was 
you know, it was time for me to step up. I couldn't privately complain about the state of things if I wasn't prepared to to, to, to step up and put myself on the line for it. So it was a really big change in career to jump into politics. But, again, I think we need more people to consider that move. You know, if you've had a successful professional life, you have a contribution to make to public life, and that's really important. So um, I, fe- I felt very motivated that we needed a better discussion, a more sensible um, a business orientated pragmatic approach around a number of issues more accountability a bit more ethics and integrity I think um, and so for me that was really key drivers to getting into politics and uh, trying to build that consensus forward yeah and, and look I, I want to now return to your analogy around a sporting career and setting a goal not knowing how exactly you're going to do it um, I uh, I described <laughs> I described um, you know the, the the broad approach to uh, to climate politics um, in, in Australia Australia over the last 10 years is a little bit like smashing hamburgers, like we're just going for the quick hit, the quick political win. Um, and I feel like we might need need some sort of exercise regime. Um, and uh, and in some ways, I wonder whether your bill would do that to provide a little bit of uh, uh, structure <laughs> to us to us as a nation, getting out of out of this quick hit and kind of actually looking looking at that at, at that at that medium and, and long term goal. Um, yeah. uh, I, I know everyone on the call will have um, uh, have heard about your bill, um, but would you mind just stepping us through the, the three or four key components and what it would actually do were it to be adopted by the Australian Parliament? Sure. And it's really actually important to understand where it's coming from. So mm. for me, a key part was how do I put forward a sensible position? So something that's going to be down the middle that really 80% of the community support uh, can embrace. Yes, there are some elements that would like to see more and more ambition, mm-hmm. and then there's others that are coming late to the party. But this is... Mm in fact, endorsed and supported by vast um, areas of business, industry, industrial relations, health, all as this is a sensible plan. So I'm not reinventing the wheel. This is actually legislation that was passed in 2008 in the UK. It started in the UK as a private member's bill. Uh, It had bipartisan support and because of the outpouring of support from the community was passed with by the government in 2008. And what it's shown is it's a legislative framework that lock in the ambition in law uh, and then the, the accountability to get there. So five-year emission reduction budgets and public reporting of how, we, how a country is tracking. Um, a lot... A lot of the planning is done from you establish an independent climate change commission which analyses the risks, has the best science around the table and makes recommendations to government around those five-year emission budgets but also around risk adaptation um, and resilience planning. Now, that's a really important element because that takes the partisan politics out of our long-term planning um, and really ensures we have the facts around the table. We currently get a number of reports, but they're done directly to ministers. They're not automatically public um, and the government sits on them for 12 to 24 months and we don't get the kind of action that's needed. So the bill has the key framework of the bill is the locking in our long-term goal and how we get there, risk adaptation uh, and assessment. So we need to be very clear about how exposed we are. We know there are environmental risks. We know unprecedented risk of um, natural events. The Bushfire Royal Commission report shows very clearly that we are 
extremely exposed. But we also have communities that are exposed from a, um, an industrial relations, from a jobs point of view. Now, we need to identify those communities and put in place a plan. If we know mm. that there is a five to 10-year period in which they are looking faced with um, a loss of, of their major employment, we need to replace that employment. Now, that employment can't be replaced in, with a turnaround of a couple of months. You need planning mm. for that to happen. So these are all the elements of the risk assessment and planning that needs to happen. Um, but we also, and then we also need to have our technology assessment. So in that sense, I've adopted in the Climate Change Bill the government's technology roadmap. Now, that is mm -hmm. a mechanism that we can keep updating our ambition when it comes to emission reductions with whatever the mm -hmm. latest technology is. Um, because what we have is a discussion always fixed around, you know, what's a 2035 goal or what's 2040. But we have to be really clear, each sector is going to decarbonise at a different pace. We have different yep. abilities around different sectors. And so I think we need to get a little bit more granular and a bit more specific about how we do it and what technology will assist. Yep, yep, yep. So they're the key elements of the bill. And, of course, we need the guiding principles. So we need to be doing this fiscally sensibly, responsibly. We need generational equity. We can't leave this to the last mm -hmm. minute. We need regional equity because all areas need to be part of the solution. Uh, we need good consultation and representation. The conversation you're listening to is just a taste of this year's National Energy Efficiency Conference, which featured 70 local and international speakers and 20 fantastic sessions covering all the big issues in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response. But if you missed the conference, don't worry. Every session was recorded and access passes are available that will allow you to watch fantastic discussions on topics such as driving a renovation wave in Australia, embedding efficiency in the national electricity market, and the future of gas, hydrogen and electrification in buildings and industry. To get your pass and catch up on the conference at your own pace, visit eec.org.au forward slash conference. And that, that point you just made around um, some granularity or nuance around how different sectors of the economy are going to decarbonise and, and, and what, that, what that means in terms of the, the technology that's available now and where we start and, and where we sort of roll up our sleeves and do the innovation and the kind of work that Arena's, Arena uh, champions and, and continues to, to prosecute. It's so important. We, we sort of we talk at this high level around uh, mitigation in Australia. We focus on the supply side of the energy sector, but actually there's this whole massive task <laughs> across the economy. Um, and there's really different um, barriers and opportunities in different parts of the economy. And um, one of uh, one of my hobby horses, uh, Zali, is, uh, you know, we, we effectively have the, the technology we need to work to act on the, the building sector now. Yep. There are implementation details and, and all of the rest of it, but, you know, electrification, um, you know, insulation, thermal mm -hmm. performance, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, the, the Europe is embraced, you may have heard, a renovation wave because they uh, they've understood that you know what we're, we're not going to get to our net zero target in any kind of um, cost effective way unless we upgrade all of our buildings, <laughs> all of our buildings by 2050. Um, and we don't need to go sit, sit in a room and think deep thoughts about whether that's a good idea in Australia or not. It's very obvious that that's where we start. And that is also supporting our, our energy intensive industries, the industries where there's there, there's less clarity. 
about how how we decarbonize it, it gives them the space to to do the pilot projects invest in the innovation um you know make sure that hi- that hydrogen economy that um, we've been talking about today and you know playing a role particularly in the industrial sector and transport and, and aviation and the like that we can ramp that up and so um uh you know anything that would uh, would help sort of tease apart, you know, this very kind of hashtag level conversation we have around climate, I think would be incredibly valuable and help sort of raise mm. the quality of the debate in Australia. Yeah, I mean, the building, I mean, I know your session today actually had a number around, um, uh, I think you had all electric homes and commercial mm. buildings. Um, it's a no-brainer that we need to change, you know, we need to update building codes to mm. build, you know, take into account climate risk um, and, and geographical risk of where, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all because risks are different in different areas. The insurance uh, lobby know that. Um, uh, we, we, you know, builders know that. Um, it's really interesting, especially post-bushfires where you've got whole communities needing to be rebuilt, um, that there is a real um, tension at the moment that um, we have to build back better. We can't just yep. build back the same. Um, and yet that is not openly uh, acknowledged and that is not part of the government's focus. So we didn't see as part of our coronavirus recovery package building incentives that were built towards building resilience, climate resilience. I mean, let's, you know, uh, achieve a couple of outcomes with the stimulus measures. It's not just Mm. about stimulating the economy and creating jobs, but let's create jobs and take care of a cost burden that we know is coming in the future. So things around, you know, double glazing glassing, insulation, Mm -hmm. uh, energy, thermal efficiency of buildings, designs, um, you know, building materials. There are so many aspects in which we could be absolutely implementing great change. And we know from a building point of view, I think it's something like 50% of buildings from 2050 will have been built between now and then. So obviously any new buildings need to be absolutely climate resilient. We have the technology. Uh, I think we have something like 80% of the technology already now to get to Mm. 80% of, you know, uh, the net zero goals. So let's Mm. actually start Mm. implementing that. And then it's a a retrofit of of buildings that, I mean, again, that's just a no-brainer. But um, there is just at the moment a a real denial occurring from the government in needing to do this. I guess the good news, um, and I'm sure you'll be across this, but um, we have seen a different approach being taken by by state governments around the country. Um, uh, All of the East Coast states and South Australia are investing in upgrading their own public buildings, which is actually really smart stimulus because, um, you know, they don't have to convince anybody to do anything. They can roll it out really quickly. Um, It's actually saving the taxpayers money um, on energy bills as well as cutting carbon um, and uh, they get that those jobs out into the market very quickly. But then you've also seen Victoria take this leadership position around upgrading um, social housing and the housing of concession card holders and, you know, there's an electrification piece of, of that, there's a thermal performance piece of that. And so, um, uh, you know, there there is a, a movement around the world um, of governments kind of heeding the advice of the experts doing exactly what you just said, um, you know, using this opportunity 
um, to uh, to uh, kickstart a, a green recovery. Mm. Um, we are doing it in Australia. We're, we're not really yet doing it in a, in a focused way at the national level, mm. um, but we are doing it at the state level, which is something something to be pleased about. I was actually going to ask you about the states because you're talking. You talked about the dysfunction at the um, at the at the national level. I'm interested in your in your home state of New South Wales, and I'm talking to I'm talking to both Minister Taylor and Minister Keane tomorrow. But Minister Keane, um, uh, Minister Keane has just had had this remarkable outcome around his um, his uh, energy infrastructure roadmap of uh, getting everybody from the Greens <laughs> to um, the Nationals to back it in in the Parliament. I think the uh, the one uh, uh, lone voice, uh, um, as uh, as Mark pointed out yesterday, is uh, is Mark Latham, um, which probably tells you you're on the right track. <laughs> So, you know, what's what, what's your observation? I'm sure you're, you're kind of keeping a, keeping a weather eye on New South Wales politics, you know, notwithstanding your focus on the federal sphere. What's your observation about um, how Minister Keane is um, is progressing this uh, this agenda? You know, noting that he's a you know this is a conservative government um, that have taking are taking a very different approach mm. to the energy transition. Yeah, I think. Look, I've I've discussed energy policy with Matt Keane um, with the minister several times. Mm. I certainly support the approach he's taking. Um, I think it's really important that they are showing leadership. It's interesting with the National Cabinet um, actually through the virus that there's that real opportunity for the states to really, I think, you know, they need to actually stand up, you know, take it to the Prime Minister in terms of federally that they are having to deliver locally uh, at state Mm. level and they're Mm. doing that. So I very much welcome the renewable energy zones and the focus Matt Keane and the New South Wales government's had. Um, Mm. Look, I think about the only lone voice really talking against it has actually been Angus Taylor at federal level as well in terms of that it goes against the idea of the gas planned recovery. Um, I think at the end of the day we really need to focus on the market where the opportunities um, and, and, and I just at the moment there's a disconnect with where the federal voice is, where the reality of the state voice and the focus is. Um, so I, I'm really you know, encourage the state governments to get on with the job, do what needs to be done and have those transition plans and really set states up, especially New South Wales, to be a real leader in renewable energy um, and those opportunities. Uh, but it does highlight that we need consistency because it does lead to that question, well, it doesn't even matter what the federal government's doing. And it does because what happens is that internationally we are getting more and more isolated. If we don't have the federal government in step with our trading partners, partners, we are not at the table for the solutions and the opportunities. 70% of our trading partners are now committed to net zero, mostly 2050 goals, China is 2060. We really need to step up. You've seen that with President-elect Biden. Um, The pressure and the call is coming loud and clear, and I think the government has a very clear choice. Now, the fact that Matt Keane, part of a conservative government, is able to do it, it shows that this isn't a matter of ideology. This isn't a matter of conservative policy versus politics versus labour politics. This is actually a a question of economics and common sense. Um, I would argue probably New South Wales uh, Liberals probably better reflect a more moderate approach that at federal level it's gone a lot more conservative and it's probably why you know, I am here in the job, uh, an electorate like Warringah, traditionally mm. conservative, uh, well, you know, has been a Liberal seat for many, many years, but is looking for fiscally sensible planning around the challenges of the future. And that's just not coming from federal government. And we're seeing independence actually bubble up and independent movements bubble up in many areas where there is that dissatisfaction um, 
that at federal level there seems to be this inability to grasp the reality. Well, it's striking to me um, that, uh, you know, you've, you've, as is often remarked upon, Zali, you've got these net zero commitments in every state and, and, and territory around the country. It's the same electorate <laughs> voting for those those governments at the state and le- territory level and yet, you know, this profoundly different outcome, although not by much. We've had a few sliding door, doors moments in Australian climate policy. Um, I, you know, I guess we hope for for, for another one soon and maybe you're, you're the catalyst for that. Well, you should say that the discussion has already shifted. So yeah. sitting in Parliament, I get the opportunity to really see the language. Um, you know, it was only about a month, a month ago that we had Angus Taylor or the Prime Minister standing up ridiculing ridiculing a net zero by 2050 goal as it's going to wreck the economy. Mm. Now, you know, putting aside that that's just nonsense, um, their language has now shifted to being, um, look, we really like net zero by 2050, we've just got to work out how to do it, um, to, you know, oh, it's a, you know, it's something we're working towards. So, um, Eminently achievable, I eminent, think, Sally. Exactly. <laughs> the language is shifting dramatically. There's no doubt about that. And so the pressure has to continue and the pressure is coming from all sectors. It's coming from, I guess, independent MPs like me. It's coming from uh, the community um, and it's coming from uh, the energy sector, which is, you know, at the end of the day, playing a huge part in that transition. All right, Zali. Well, um, look, I just want to say thank you, um, and especially given that you're out and about to go to a function for making the time and finding a quiet spot there at the zoo to to catch up with us for for a beer and and to close out day two of the conference. Yes, and... I haven't drunk yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've had a lot to say, and, and rightly so. There's a, there's a lot to cover in this space, and um, I uh, wish you wish you all the best um, uh, as you continue to, put, to try and play a constructive role in landing a, a debate that has been a vexed one for Australia for a while now. I think there's plenty of people on the call that would be delighted um, if we could um, settle some of the, the basic parameters of, of what we're dealing with here and, and, and get on with getting some stuff done to, to address them. So uh, thank you, Zali Stegall. Thank you. 